Welcome to episode 246 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, and more. You know, if you like Stageworthy and you listen on Apple Podcasts, I hope that you leave a five-star rating and a comment. Your ratings and comments do something magical within the Apple Podcast algorithm to push it up in the list and help new people to find the show. Or you know what? If you know someone that you think will like the show, tell them about it. Some of my favorite podcasts became my favorites because someone I knew told me about them. And remember, you can find and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify just by searching for Stageworthy and clicking the handy subscribe button. So if you tell somebody about Stageworthy, let me know about it. You can find Stageworthy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at StageworthyPod. And you can find the website with the archive of all 246 episodes at StageworthyPodcast.com. And if you want to drop me a line, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby. And my website is PhilRickaby.com. My guest this week is Landon Waliser. Landon is a director, producer, and publicist from Regina, Saskatchewan. Well, how are things in? in Regina at the moment uh, are you guys are you guys uh releasing lockdown are you are you are you still on lockdown what's happening we are still kind of in lockdown they're slowly easing the restrictions on like um food delivery services and businesses like that but like the arts are shut down there is not a lot happening in the arts scene right now mm, there's a lot uh, of that going around for sure yeah. i was supposed to be i was in meetings for this contract position with our regional theater here right before all of this happened in March, like I was kind of waiting on their season announcement. And then I was having another meeting to follow up on two previous meetings about like which shows I was going to be working on. And then the season announcement never came. The pandemic hit. And now when I've talked to them, they're like, so we don't know anything that's happening until January of next year. And I'm like, yeah, okay. I understand. Yeah, I, I I hear a lot of theaters uh, are talking about January as a possibility, but as we get closer and closer to the fall, yeah, I think there's a little there's a lot less confidence about January yeah. being the date that we all reopen. Yeah, for sure. Uh, what what were you going to be directing uh, in that in that regional theater? Uh, directing. Oh yeah, tell me about. Um, what made you want to be a director? Oh, okay. I don't, it's a hard thing to articulate. It was one of those things, especially like growing up in a small town and you've seen my headshot for the people who haven't seen my headshot. I'm like average height, heavy set, very like not the leading man looking. And that was something that always stuck in my head. And I was never that person that wanted to be the lead. I enjoyed doing the background parts far more than the leading parts because I think it's fun to steal attention and pull focus and do stuff like that. And the more time that went by where I wasn't doing leading stuff, I would be sitting there watching rehearsal, watching directors work. And I was like, that's what I want to do. I want to be the person that can make all of these other decisions about like 
what's on stage, what's happening, because, you know, I would be critical of like, oh, there's something should be happening in, you know, the upstage left corner. Why is nothing happening during this scene? Or all these people who are playing servants have no story going on and they should be focusing on what their individual stories are. I don't understand why the director isn't giving them notes. And like, I know I'm being harsh because these were middle school directors directing middle school children. (laughs) But I'm a crazy Virgo who's like hyper attentive to detail and stuff like that always bothered me. And the more time went on, the more I was like, that seems like that would be a part that would work well for me. I would do well as a director. Do you recall when, what your first directing, what you first directed? Yes. Um, my first directing outing on my own was in my grade 12 year of high school. There's a thing in Saskatchewan called the Saskatchewan Drama Association. Um, and they put on a festival called the SDA Festival every year and it's a festival of one act plays from schools all across Saskatchewan um so there's a series of smaller festivals so we were region three if I remember correctly so we competed with the small towns around Swift Current and Swift Current usually was kind of like the hub um I think we only hosted one or two years that I was in high school so out of, I mean out of four years we probably hosted 50 percent of the time because we were the largest school with the largest auditorium. But in my grade 12 year, me and one other grade 12 student were given the opportunity to direct our own shows. And so that was my first solo outing as a director. Now, when you say your own show as a director, you didn't write the show as well. No, did I didn't. I had done, okay. I okay. had done, I think two shows before that, that I had assistant directed in middle school. And then I had done shows all throughout high school that I wasn't a director on, that I was either performing or helping with crew or doing other things like that. But I had two assistant directing things before that. Mm-hmm. And where did where did you go from high school? Did you go to theater school? Did you did you pursue directing as a as a form of study? Uh, yes, um, I went to after high school when I graduated. I went to the University of Regina. And originally I was enrolled in film and I did my whole first year in film. Um, And I love film. Film is something that I've always loved. It's something I've always wanted to work in. Um, But as I went through the film program in that first year, so much of the focus was on the technical aspects of filmmaking and not on like the creative aspect of filmmaking. Mm -hmm. And I was finding that really discouraging because like I knew how to work a camera I know hmm. how the focuses work and like how to stage scenes and stuff, but I was missing a lot of, a lot of the filmmaking process that I knew I needed to learn because it was areas where I struggled. Do you know if that's something that they get to later or are they just like, we're going to teach you the technical stuff and you'll figure out the rest later. It's something that they kind of weave in and out, but from what I've heard from most of the people here, it's something that is a bit of uh a soft spot's not the word I'm looking for. Um, it's a bit of a blind spot in the department here from what I can tell. Hmm. It's a lot of very technically skilled people who've done lots of hmm. work with IATSE and lots of like uh, biz arts type film installations, hmm. Hmm. but not a lot of people that have written a film or people that act in films. And like the University of Regina, there's still kind of a disconnect between the theater department and their actors that they have at their disposal and their directors 
and the film people who have all of these, all the equipment and stuff at their disposal. They don't work huh. hand in hand. My sister is currently the head of the theater department students and keeps trying mm-hmm. to connect these student groups together. Cause right now she's one of the only people. And so she's appearing in 10 student films a semester. <laughs> right. Is there, is there, is there something like culturally that keeps the students apart or is it structural that somehow keeps the theater students from the film? Students? I think it's more structural. Their program and the way it's structured does not really allow for the time to be working with theater students and have that kind of planning's not the word I'm looking for either. Having they, the way it was in my first year, at least, was you would go and you would sign out your film equipment and you would have it for 24 hours and then you had to return it. So there wasn't a lot of opportunity for like great planning. And Hmm. yeah. And so like if a student, a theater student can't do something that day because they're in rehearsal, you Hmm. were screwed as a film student. Was it a lot of run and gun or was it, I mean, 24 hours isn't a lot of time to have equipment. Out. No, it's not. Um, and like, I knew I had a very hard time in my first year because of that. Um, but you are only allowed to use, especially analog equipment in the first year. They really focus on older analog equipment. Hmm. So I struggled with that a lot. And then I was asked by one of the theater professors to stage manage a small show that they were doing for the theater students that year, that Christmas called the eight reindeer monologues. And so I went and did that. And then I was like, I like this program a lot better because this program has people who have worked in film and television Hmm. and all of these different disciplines as well, but they are working from the parts of it that I know I need to study more. Hmm. They're talking about script writing and they're talking about story breakdowns and acting and pulling performances out of actors. And I'm like, that's the part that I know I need to work on. Um, I mean, that's, I think that's all, uh, that's often the bit that, that actors who are working in film wish that the directors knew more of. Yes. <laughs> you know, especially when you're starting out, there's a lot of, and you know, there's a lot of, um, everything is very technical and you're kind of like, I have questions and they're like, just move over there. I always found as a theater grad, when I did films, everything became about the technicalities. In fact, it always drove me crazy about the lack of rehearsal. Yes. And like I had, I had my editing computer and I like, I've still done, I've done lots of video and video editing since, cause I understand editing quite well. Um, and so I did video advertisements for all of the theater department's shows. Cause I was eventually hired as their publicist. Um, like half a year after I was in the program um, and they knew I had this kind of film crossover. Um, and that was one of the things I always enjoyed is because you're working on the play that they've already rehearsed. You can, if you're filming bits of the show, they've rehearsed it. They have, they know what they're doing. And so the film part of it is so much easier to deal with. Cause if you plan it out with the people you're filming with, it went by, with no trouble and you were able to Mm -hmm. take that direction the actors had been given and work with it because they had something to work with compared to working on student films where it is they usually are brought in they're given the script they're given a few directions which is usually like say it quieter i want it more dramatic 
<laughs> we're like, okay. Which are not not exactly helpful. No, directions. it's not a helpful direction at all. <laughs> I remember the the only film that I've ever really done that I think I was any good at. We actually had rehearsals. Yeah, it was like this independent film, and the directors um, got. They were like, you know what? We're, we've 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 brought in a like four theater actors, so let's work with them. And what they they did the exact right thing because they they brought us in. We were very theatery, and then over time through the the month of rehearsals that we had on and off, they brought us down to film level, and then we were ready to go and we could film a thing in a weekend. Yeah, you know. But that's the only one that I've ever done that I can look at and be like, I did really well there because we rehearsed yeah. it. Well, and like, of course, you spend a lot of your first year of film studies being like, okay, so this is like how you do a shot list. This is how you do this. Laying out all of the like pre-production work that goes into making a film. Mm. And then I was like, okay, so then on the day you are working with the actors. If you're not rehearsing with them beforehand, you get to work with the actors on the day. And it's kind of just managing the technical aspect of the film. And that was never what it was with student films because it was kind of such a rush job mm-hmm. and getting everything for 24 yeah. hours, trying to get stuff in while the light's ready, trying to get stuff in while this is happening. Yeah, I always felt like when I did student films <laughs> that it was like, all right, you're good enough, whatever. And, and which is consequently why I've never gone back and, back and watched any of those films. Yeah, I've had actor friends be like, can you make my demo reel from all of these student films that I did? And you watch half of them and you're like, you don't want these in your demo reel. <laughs> No, no, you don't. You don't at all. No. Um, you mentioned being a publicist. So how did you get from directing to publicist? Um, I guess the big thing was, okay, so I switched from film into theater, um, in my, at the start of my second year and you, you don't just get to do like an assistant directorship right away in the like program. Um, and there's no specific kind of directing track for it. Um, at the end of my first year of university, right before I switched into theater, there had also been a restructuring at the university and they had eliminated the BFA in acting. It was all kind of switched to a BA program. Um, and so it was a lot less specific in like which classes everyone was having to take and stuff. So when I went in, I met with... Um, my academic advisor and the, at the time, the head of the theater department, who was one of the people who had kind of like encouraged me to join it. And I said like, this is what I want. I want to be a director. I want to like, this is the path that I want to have over the next like three years in university. And they're like, okay, we can probably make that happen this semester. Like, because everything's been planned out, we, you don't really have an opportunity for that, but we've had this publicist who quit. Would you be interested in doing that? Um, and I said, sure. And it ended up being me and one other student sharing the publicity job on the first semester. Um, and it was a big show. It was, um, Bertolt Brecht's Fear and Misery in the Third Reich. So it was a hard show to sell to people. (laughs) Um, I I, I can't imagine why. (laughs) Um, so it ended up being a lot of my job was just kind of, you know, working on connecting us with the community. The posters had been done. Everything was done in-house at that time, not by a student. So posters, advertising programs, all of that was already done and and or being finished by like the department secretary and the director. So my job was like, I connected us with the synagogue in town. I connected 
um, like various businesses with the program. Like I think we got some sponsored haircuts and stuff for that show. Um, and then I asked if I could make a video ad for the show. They hadn't thought of that. Mm. And it wasn't the thing that they were doing at the time. I had specifically asked if I wanted, if I could do it. Um, Cause it had this idea one night of doing a video for the show with the Shema in it, which is like a Hebrew prayer that's said over dying people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had this whole thing in my head right away. And so they said, sure. And I did it and they were all very impressed by it. So then when the next semester rolled around, they just right away were like, do you want to do publicity and you can do it on the because we <laughs> trust you. Um, and then a lot of it became kind of like, Every semester, the show would roll around, and I would ask for a little bit more control over the publicity. So, like the second hmm. time I did it, I did some poster design for it, um, and I got to do like the front of house display for it. <clears throat> and then the show after that, I was assistant directing, um, which was called Backstory um, by Joan Ackerman and several other people. It's a very interesting script, but it's mostly the story is by Joan Ackerman. Um, and so I had kind of an insight into that show and I was able to do video advertising for it. Um, and I w- didn't end up getting to do poster design for that one either, but it kind of just kept evolving from there because I kept asking for these opportunities. So when you started, you didn't particularly have any experience in doing publicity? Not at all. I had zero experience in doing publicity. Hmm. Um, <laughs> Like I said, I had done like high school shows up until that point. I had literally no experience doing publicity. So were they just at the time, were they just like, we need somebody to do this and you seem keen? Was that the... Uh, a little bit. Was well, that kind of the... The... Woman, yeah. <laughs> the woman who was the head of the department at the time, or the... Was she the head of the department? Yeah, she was the head of the department at the time. Um, knew I had been in film. And so... When the like position had become open, she just asked if I wanted to do it, thinking that I would have some experience in Photoshop and like wrangling people, I think. I don't oh. know why she would have thought of it otherwise, because I didn't have any experience with it. Um, <laughs> and I had just said, sure, because it, like, it was a paid student position. So that was also that perk. And that first semester wasn't great because I split it with someone else. So it only ended up being like $300 for three months of work. But every semester after that, it was a guaranteed paid job for yes. working on. Um, but you obviously took to it because it's something you've kept doing. Yes. yes I, fu- I found I was very good at it. Um, and like, I don't want that to seem like I'm bragging because that's not based on kind of my own perception of it. We have this, like, like we toured a show across the country for two years and made our money back on this show that cost quite a lot to be basically produced by eight out-of-work students. Mm. So we were clearly doing something right. Well, you know, publicity does a lot of things. Uh, uh, Marketing a show can bring people in and you know that's always one of the things that when people are doing fringe shows and things like that it's always like often the last thing they think about is how they're going to market the show and how they're going to get the word out when that's sort of reversed they should be thinking about that first and then the other stuff because they're not going to have time when they need to think about it 
you know? Well, and like that was because Love Loss was the big friend show that I've done. I've now done publicity for three different friend shows. Love Loss, which was my own f- show that I was producing. And then two other shows that were done by the Blue Room Company, which is the theater students company at the University of Regina. And for those, I was just publicity. Um, so I have now quite a bit of experience doing publicity for fringe festivals, which is very interesting. Because it's a very different like ball game than when you're doing publicity locally. Especially when we did Love Lost the second year when we toured and we did the Regina Fringe and we did Hamilton Fringe and Edmonton Fringe because mm-hmm. all of their publicity rules are very different. That is the that is one of the tricks. I mean, first of all, like you said, you can't you can't market a a fringe show in the same way as you market a non fringe yeah. show. It's a very specific microcosm, and also there are different guidelines for each fringe, so you can't trans you can't just transfer it over yeah yeah when the last fringe show that i did publicity for was called the obligatory scene and it was done last year here and it's a small kind of like chamber piece about these two lesbians who are arguing and they come to like the verge of this breakup in their relationship so it was a very fringy show and it was a very hard show to market because it's very dramatic it covered a lot of like very sensitive material about sexual assault and misogyny but it was also kind of a comedy and like it was being produced by the blue room company um and it started like two women and it was directed by these two women and like being produced by the head of the blue room company who was also a woman and it was written by this woman in the mid 90s and i kept asking them because they brought me on and i hadn't read the script i didn't know anything they just knew that i had done all of these shows for fringes like, what, who is your target audience for this show? Is it women generally? Is it specifically, like, gay women? Kind of, who are you mm-hmm. looking at targeting here? Um, and they, by about halfway through the process, had a very clear idea of who was going to enjoy the show. And they were able to find, like, key art that they wanted that I was able to use and make into their poster. Um, and then, like, in contrast to that... Once I just have to cough. Yeah. In contrast to that, the first fringe show that I did publicity for that I wasn't involved in otherwise uh, was Daniel McIver's This Is a Play. Mm-hmm. And so much of This Is a Play's humor relies on not really knowing going in what it's about. Yes. Um. Because, like, for those who don't know, it's a play that consists entirely of the inner monologues of actors in the midst of a performance of a very Tennessee Williams-type show. So it's better if you don't know anything going in, because it's much, much funnier. And so me and the director of that show had devised a whole marketing campaign about being deliberately vague. And so the tagline for <laughs> the show was, this is a play, it is directed by a person... It takes place in a place and it is performed by actors. (laughs) And then the picture, like the key art was just this head of lettuce. And that was it. No one knew anything else about the show. (laughs) Like strange parks and rec kind of offbeat humor to it. So people knew it was funny at least, Mm -hmm. but it ended up being very well received. And I think a lot of it was these kind of like, set expectations but these very vaguely set expectations 
absolutely necessary, though, because as you're describing that, I'm like, yes, that is the only way that you can really advertise that show. Yeah. Now, speaking about the show, you know, you have the, the, the show that you were talking about before that one, um, where you were asking them about who the target audience is. Did they know to start who the target audience was or did you have to get them there? They had an idea. They knew that they were reaching out to predominantly gay women. And I said, that's like, that's great, but that's not a very like large target audience. You have to kind of reach further, especially for like fringe in Regina, which was the only place they were performing. Right. So like, as we worked, we kind of settled on like that vibe of like collegiate college aged women. Um, you know, the type of like women who attend fringe shows. Um, and so like their key art that they found was of this girl in a sack dress with a paper bag on her head. Hmm. And it was very funny and exactly that type of thing you expect from like arts going and theater going women of like, I would say 20 to 35. Hmm. And it was just a really great piece of art that kind of spoke to that age group. And I knew it would speak to that age group. And it, didn't, it wasn't very specific. It didn't say anything about what the show was about. It didn't give away anything that would alienate people or like turn people off from coming or anything like that. Cause it was, it was a hard show and I knew that not everyone was going to enjoy seeing it because it dealt with some very serious things in a way that was potentially like upsetting for people. Cause it vacillated wildly between like jokes and very serious discussion. Yeah. There's something about a really like good looking publicity materials that makes people more likely to see your show at fringe. I think generally, but at fringe, it can really help. Yeah. Um, and like, I remember love loss. That was one of the big things. Love loss was a very like interesting show because a lot of it was us like looking at what they had done in the New York production and saying like, how can we improve this? And so we changed a lot of it. And one of the things um, in the marketing for Love Loss and What I Wore is that there's this iconic like pink dress stencil drawing. Mm. It's just a singular pink dress stencil drawing of a dress on a hanger. Very, very simple. And that is always what's used to advertise the show. Right. And one of the things that we had done when we were doing the production was, okay, so the script calls for five actresses wearing black, sitting on stage, and reading from the script, reading these stories from the script. Um, and there's supposed to be like um, a flipboard with paper on it that they've drawn the dresses and titles on for these mm. stories. And I hated that. My brother and I were the ones who had come up with like the production for the show. Mm -hmm. And we both disliked it. And so it was a thing we were really working strongly against. And one of our first choices was we were going to bring in six women and dress them in the colors of the rainbow. Um, so they were each wearing one singular color. Hmm. And so when we started doing the poster design for the show, I took that dress, the single pink dress, and we recolored it in one for each color of the rainbow and like splayed them out in a, in a circle. And so it looked a bit like a clock. It looked a bit like a flower. I kind of read as a lot of different things, but it was still clearly a dress on a hanger. And it was very, very simple. Like it was just that. And then the title um, were kind of our key images. 
but we were able to use it so many times and reuse these dresses in their single colors so many times over that it just it paid dividends in the advertising um, side of things. We were able to do like photo shoots with them in their one color. And it was such that one choice made up kind of the entire marketing strategy. I always find like when I'm marketing a show for myself, like to have as many images as possible so that you're not always just like stuck with the one image. And I often use those in social media and things like that just to, you know, to have choices so you're not like constantly just pumping out the same image over and over. And so it's like, I will try to create material that, 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 that has options. And also I do a lot of blanks so that in the middle of a run, I have something to work with that I'm not creating an image in the middle of the show. Yeah. And like, that was our logo art, like that kind of image of the dress and the title of the dresses, I should say, and the title, but it gave us a lot of other options with other things. So like one of the things we did for publicity is we did like the Proust questionnaire that Vanity Fair does with their celebrity guests. Um, we did it for each of the women and we hmm. got it themed in their color. And it's like that color choice gave us a really hmm. wide range of stuff that we could work within while still keeping it in theme. And that rainbow was the theme. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me a little bit more about the women's company. Okay. Um, so the women's company started with love loss. Um, like I was saying, it kind of started, it starts very like antithetical to what you thinking it's being called the women's company with my brother and I, um, I gave him the script for love loss for his birthday, I think in 2015, but I don't remember. It was a thing that I had read and heard about and loved. And so I'd given it to him. He loves clothes. He does costume design and acting. Um, and I knew it was going to be a show that he would really enjoy. We also both love Nora Ephron. So that was a huge part of it too. Um, and as things politically in 2016 were spiraling, um, for lack of a better term, um, in some very unpleasant ways, we started talking about like, we should do something artistically about this. Cause this just like, it seems so stupid to be sitting here doing nothing, but also like we can't really do anything that affects grand change, you know, in the States, in their political atmosphere or how it's trickling over into here, but we could do something. And we started talking about doing a production and then we kind of landed on doing love loss um, because it's a very simple show and it would be very simple to stage. And then we were like, well, why don't we have a reading? And so we invited six women that we knew who were all kind of in the same situation as us, like recent graduates of theater in university who weren't really getting work professionally in Saskatchewan. Um, and we had this reading and everyone loved it. It was, it went so well. And Afterwards, we kind of were all immediately like, we need to do this. We need to do this show. And so the first year, the women, the women's company kind of formed as just like, you need a company name for Fringe. And so we picked the women's company of Regina. And that was the theater name. 
that was our company name that we could submit for fringes. Um, and the only fringe we got into in that first year was Regina, mm-hmm. which was fine. We did our performance in Regina. We had a couple performances in Swift Current in, I think it was February of that year as well, that we used as preview performances. It was the first time we were really like on stage and everyone got to perform in front of an actual audience who hadn't been seeing the show for a long time. Um, but we were missing like a lot of our tech stuff. We didn't have our costume pieces in place. And like, we weren't staging the whole show cause it's monologues. Um, but we really wanted to physicalize the costumes more than a drawing of it on a whiteboard basically. So we had gotten white pieces of clothing that represented all of the pieces that they talked about in the, in their monologues. Um, so that they were all like memory pieces of clothing. Because obviously not all the ones they talked about were white. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we were really, really well received in Swift Current and at Fringe. And we talked about afterwards and we we're like, do we want to continue doing this? Because our original plan had been to try to get into Edmonton or into one of the larger Fringes to perform it. And everyone was kind of like, yeah, we're not done with the show. We want to continue on with it. And so over these, like, I would say, like, five months after Fringe had kind of ended, um, around to around the new year, we started trying to put together an infrastructure in which it was feasible for us to keep producing the show. Um, Because we knew that producing a tour was going to be very expensive. And we didn't have any sort of larger body connected with us. It was just my brother and I and these six women. Mm Mm-hmm funding it out of our own pockets. Um, And so one of the first things we did is we started an Etsy store and we decided that it was going to just be the women's company. And that would be what we did. And so we were adding all sorts of items to it. I was designing scarves for it. Um, And then we designed a bunch of souvenir scarves that went along with the show that people could sell. Um, People could buy. I mean, I was selling them. And then we were able to partner with a shoe company that was making custom shoes. Ooh. Yeah. Um, and so we were able to sell and design like eight pairs of custom heels that people were able to buy. Um, and then like, we just kept reaching out to all of these people in the community and all of these people in the like larger, um, like self-producing infrastructure community, I want to say. Like our printer that we use for our Etsy store is based out of Montreal. And like, it's a larger business, but it's by no means a chain business. It's not a huge company. Um, I can call them up and I can talk to the person who runs the entire thing because they probably have like 150 employees. Right. Um, And so as it grew and grew, we were like, okay, hey, we need to make this like a, this is a thing. So we kind of fell into being the women's company. Um, and like, we all set out this um, like guide that we were going to focus on producing theater that was written by women and about women. And that would be our focus. And that was where we wanted to go from here. And that's what we wanted to do with this company. Um, we were also partnering, like every production of Love Loss had been partnered with some sort of, um, charity angle as well. We were partnered 
with a group in Swift Current, like I think it was the women's shelter as well as um, I believe it was something with um, new incoming immigrant families. I don't remember. We didn't get to choose for the Swift Current performance who we were partnered with. Hmm. But in Regina, we partnered with the Regina Transition House, which is like the women's shelter here in town. And then when we started off on the tour, we called up the women's shelter in Hamilton and the women's shelter in Edmonton. And we're like, do you guys want to be partnered with us? You don't like, they didn't have to give us anything. We were giving them free tickets. Right. Um, and then we gave a portion of our profits back to them. Um, the first year we were partnered with like Hilberg and Burke, um, which you may or may not know. It's a jewelry company that started out of Regina. Um, but it's, I would say quite nationally known now. Um, and they did a custom necklace for us that we were able to auction off. Wow. Yeah. And the profits for that went back to the women's shelter here. Um, we also got six pairs of earrings from them for the women that were in mm. the show that matched their colors. So they were able to wear them on stage every night. Um, yeah, it just kind of became a company. Um, and became something that was going to continue on outside of this one production. And you took the show, you did, you've done, you did it in Regina, and then you did it in Hamilton, Ontario, and then in Edmonton, Alberta, yeah. at the Fringe Festivals there. Yeah. Um, you know, I've I've done the 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 Hamilton Fringe. It's a it's a very warm fringe. It is not a large fringe. And then to go from there to yeah. Edmonton, what was what was that like? Um, it was, it ended up being quite nice because the way that the tour happened is we were in Regina. We did the Regina Fringe the first year. We knew how Regina Fringe had operated. I had been on the Regina Fringe board previous to that year. So I knew quite well how that fringe operated and it's quite a small fringe. And then Hamilton was like that next step up. It was a larger fringe in a larger city that we didn't know, but it wasn't huge. And then... We had a lot of help, I will also say, from, like, Carlin, especially. Carlin was someone we talked to in the first year that we did the show, and we probably wouldn't have felt comfortable touring without her, because she mm-hmm. gave us a lot of support. She posted for us in Hamilton. Um, she gave us a lot of advice about, like, Edmonton and how Edmonton was going to work. Um, but I was, because I was the one producing the show for the tour, I ended up handling a lot of the stuff going from place to place. So mm. for me, it was a bit of a shock. Mm. Um, I'm not sure how the cast felt because they were kind of just like given their grooming assignments. They were given all of this information and they just kind of had to run with it. Yeah. But Edmonton can be a bit of a shock for a performer as well as, as well as it's bigger than anything in Canada. So yeah. showing up to do Edmonton, is even if you think you're ready for it, your first time, you're probably not. Probably not. And like, I will <laughs> know my perspective is definitely tinged by the fact that I wasn't a performer in the show. Right. I worry about the show in the same way that they did. Um, But like, by the time I got to Edmonton, I know I was, I was ready or I felt like I was ready for it. A lot of other things happened in Edmonton kind of, all at once that wasn't about us there was ended up being like several scandals with a bunch of reviewers right um and stuff the year we were there and then the paper that did those reviews were shut down and it was like there were a lot of other things that were happening that were quite distracting wow from our experience of like wow this is the biggest fringe in north america 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As we sort of get to the towards the the top of the hour here um, for our recording time, um, I was wondering, you know, we sort of we sort of mentioned a little earlier in 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 part of the conversation that that that's cut that um, you know you've you've been you know you had some stuff that was about to happen and then COVID came and then those things are not happening as is a pretty common story for many people in the theater community. Um, what are you doing to keep things, you know, going, what are you doing for yourself to, to, to keep the creative everything going right now? Um, I mean, that's a good question right now. I've been reading a lot. I've been rereading some of the shows that I'd worked on previously, but not in like a directing capacity. It's hard as a director and a producer to find like an artistic outlet the same way it is for a performer. That's a thing that I'm finding very difficult right now. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. My brother and my sister who are both performers have been involved in several readings and stuff that have been done. And I haven't had really anything like that to kind of fall back on. So it's been a lot of reading scripts Mm -hmm. Working on stuff as much as I can. Like I said, um, in the bit that we kind of lost after that power out there, um, I didn't know the season that I was in talks to go on to to work hadn't been announced prior to COVID. So I don't know what the season was. I have nothing, like no goal kind of thing to work towards right now. So like I was reading Terrence McNally and then Terrence McNally died. Mm -hmm. So I started rereading shows that I worked on. Um, just little things like that I found has been kind of what I've been focusing on. I also still like, I still run the women's company store for them. Mm-hmm. We still have like kind of a funding mechanism for it. Next time we have mm-hmm. a production that we are interested in mounting that we're ready, to, we're ready and yeah. able to do that. Yeah. And what is it, what has been giving you joy that's, that's been getting you through these days? Um, I spend a lot of time with my family a mm. bit, which has been a godsend. We're all still like fairly geographically close. Mm. Um, and when the pandemic started, one of the things we decided right away, cause I'd already been home pretty much in isolation for a couple of weeks before that, just because I was waiting on these contracts to happen and hadn't been doing much. Um, so I went home and was with my parents for a bit, um, helping out just generally around the house, um, working on just like design stuff, working on designs for, um, like I said, the women's company's Etsy store and stuff like that. Um, it became, this is a side note, not very theater related. We became very well known in Britain as a store because we sell replicas of World War II propaganda scarves that were very popular and no one else does that. So we've had a huge influx in orders as people have been buying online. So I've been handling this store a lot of the time. Yeah. That's pretty cool to have that happening. And it's good to have some kind of source of source of income for when the company has a project to work on again. Yeah. I talked, I was invited to do a talk back at fringe the first year and one of the questions have been like, why Fringe? Why did you decide that Fringe was the right place for your show? Um, 
And most of the people that were on the panel, of course, were like self-producing work that they had written that was very personal for them. And I was the only person on the panel that was there with a show that was pre-written, that was being licensed, that had all of these other mm. things happening. And I was just like, because Fringe provides like an infrastructure for people who don't have the means to produce shows independently otherwise. Yeah. The big thing for us. Like if I had to pay for a theater for us to put on the show, I would not have been able to afford it. We would have made no money mm. because we were able to do that. Fringe provided the means for us to have that, yeah. that opportunity. And like I said, we were all kind of out of work, recently graduated college trained actors, university trained actors. Like, what else were we going to do if we're not getting jobs professionally? There's not a lot that you can do besides making some sort of work. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's it's super important to 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 make some work, to make something happen, especially when you're right out of theater school. Yeah. Well, Landon, thank you so much for making the time to talk to me today. You're very welcome. This has been a Homebody Productions production.